I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. So glad to have you back with us for this episode of the Parenting Aces podcast. I am coming at you from Atlanta, Georgia, where it is hot, hot, hot and humid, humid, humid. And I have been out in it with our Saul Schwartz Save College Tennis All-In Tournament that happened in Atlanta this past week, which was phenomenal. And for those of you who were there and I got a chance to meet, that was amazing. I, I always love meeting fellow tennis parents and people kind of going through the journey and learning along the way. And for those of you who weren't able to be there, well, you just missed a great event and you better sign your kid up for next year's event or you can sign up for the Baltimore tournament, which is coming up August 12th and 13th. And that link to register will be in the show notes. So be sure and check that out. This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the mental side of tennis with Dr. Michelle Clear, a sports psychologist who is based in the Bay Area of California, and she is going to talk with us about helping our kids handle themselves better on the court and off the court also, but really helping them learn how to deal with the frustrations that they face during their tennis training, their practices, their tournament play, and things like what to do when you're frustrated with an official or what to do when you're faced with a cheater or what to do when you're just not having your best day tennis-wise on the court. And making sure that our kids have those tools is a gift that we can give them as their parents. And Dr. Michelle is going to talk to us about how we can work with her and learn more about how to help our kids in this way. So I hope you enjoy the podcast this week. Be sure and check out the show notes for some important links. And without further ado, Dr. Michelle. I am here with Dr. Michelle Clear, and Michelle, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast this week. Thank you for joining us. Lisa, thanks so much for having me on. I I really appreciate your time, and uh, I'm really excited to be on, and uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that there are people like you out there doing this kind of work, so thanks again. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So for my listeners' benefit, because um, in case they haven't gone to your website or aren't familiar with your work, can you give us a little bit of background on your education and how you came to get involved in the world of tennis? Absolutely. I have a master's degree in sports psychology and a Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and um, I, let's see, how did I, how did I get into working with tennis players? Well, I've been doing this work for about 15 years, and along that time, my path has gone in many, many different directions. I've worked with many, many different kinds of athletes, and one day I. Uh, someone got in touch with me to work with a professional tennis player. So I started working with a professional tennis player and just really liked it. I had had exposure working with tennis players on a smaller scale, a few kids here and there, but not too much. And 
then when I got this professional tennis player, I realized, oh my gosh, you know, I, I love tennis. I love the game. And, um, several years after that, uh, I developed my beating the tennis demon system and just started getting more and more into tennis. I've been to, um, PTR for mm, probably the last five out of six years. And I've, um, spoken there and done some speaking with USPTA and, and really just so my listeners in, in case my listeners aren't familiar yeah, with those, those are two no that's okay those are two coaching certifying organizations PTR and USPTA so um, so you you've gone and spoken at the coaching organizations yes spoken at the coaching organization um, more for um, PTR um, several years there, uh, five, I think I'm, I'm at right now and USPTA a couple times. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving tennis. And again, I developed this beating the tennis demon system and it's been really, really beneficial for my, my clients and, um, just, uh, you know, starting to work with Mike Burrell and, uh, Women's Tennis Coaches Association and, you know, I've written for Tennis Pro Magazine. So really over the last probably, I'd say five or six years really have started to gain momentum in the tennis industry and, I just love it. I, I play a little bit of tennis, not a lot of tennis. I play a little bit of tennis. Uh, I love the sport, and I just really, really love working with tennis players. And it's kind of one of those areas that I, I guess I never really expected was going to necessarily be my niche, but it turned out to be my niche, and I'm I'm actually really, really happy about it. Well, let's take a step back for a minute, and because I've had – people on the podcast over the years that, you know, work with athletes on the mental side of the game. And when I have the opportunity to talk to somebody who is an actual trained sports psychologist, I mean, you have a master's and a PhD, um, I think it's, it's good to maybe talk a little bit about what that work entails. So as a sports psychologist, what is it that you do and can do for young athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I really love that question because it's such a foundational question. And there's still so many people that really, really don't, I don't want to say they don't understand the mental side, but I think all tennis players understand that the mental side is really important for tennis, but then they sort of go, well, yeah, but I'm not really sure what to do about that. Right. Well, and and, so, you know, most of them work very hard on the physical part. They work hard on the court. They work hard in the gym. Um, You know, they're starting to work a little bit harder on the nutrition piece of things, though there's still a lot of stuff that needs to happen in that arena. But but I think people are, you know, even still, people are leery of, you know, this whole idea of working on the mental side and what, you know, oh, my gosh, what might come up and what is that going to say about me as a human being, right. and as a tennis player, and 
Um, so I am, I'm here to provide an opportunity for you to dispel some myths and rumors. I love that. That's one of my favorite jobs. I, I actually do that every day when I have a consult with, uh, you know, particularly, well, I mean parents, but particularly kids. It's all about demystifying this because people see psychology and they go, oh, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with me. Right. And, you know, I want to tell people out there there isn't anything wrong with you. So let me back up a little bit. And I'll, if, I'll explain the process the way that I, this, this process of kind of mental skills like I, like I do with parents. Perfect. So that's our audience. Yeah. So yeah. Great. Perfect. So we, you know, we grow up, kids grow up. And as we grow up, we bump into difficulties, adversity, barriers, and we just sort of figure out how to deal with it. No one sits us down and really talks to us about how to deal with competitive pressure, how to deal with nerves, how to deal with overthinking, how to, you know, what, what is confidence? How do, you, how do you get confidence? How do you lose confidence? No one sits us down and has this conversation. So, as we go through the world, as we go through school and tennis, we just sort of figure out how to deal with things. And what ends up happening is that many times, because we sort of are just grasping for things in our environment, many times the way that we figure out how to deal with things is not always the best way. For example, you know, a lot of kids cry on the tennis court, and these are actual things I've heard, right, from kids and from parents. Sure. Cry, sure. On, cry on the tennis court, throw their rackets, uh, you know, whack a ball, slam their rackets on the court, probably things you and most people out there have seen or heard about. And, again, this is the way that that child has figured out how to get out, how to let go, how to deal with whatever is going on in that moment. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit because I have gotten so many phone calls from parents who are like, I just don't know what to do. I just, my child is crying after the match or crying in the middle of the match and, banging their racket on the tennis court, and my first instinct is to pull them out. So I say to that parent, well, you can do that. It's absolutely your prerogative to do that. But just know that right now your child is just doing whatever they can do to sort of deal with the environment, and that's the only way they know how to deal with the environment. So... If they had the skills to be able to deal with the environment in a different way, they would. I mean, let's think about it. Who, what kid wants to be standing in the middle of a match crying? Right. What kid wants to be standing in the middle of their match, like, you know, really angry and slamming their racket on the court? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't really know of any. Right. Well, and not only do they not want to do it, then when they get coded by an official, right? Because 
that's what they've done, then that presents a whole, you know, related set of issues to deal with. Totally, totally. Yeah, and they feel humiliated and they feel embarrassed. And, you know, some of this is the reason why many times when I get a 12 or 13-year-old tennis player here, the parent's like, well, you know, he or she just wants to quit. And I said, well, yes, of course. I mean, you know, if their only option is to deal with the mental ups and downs on the court in this way and they're feeling embarrassed and humiliated, then I want to quit too. Sure. So the great, great, I, I, I love my job. I mean, I, I get up every day and I just can't wait for the next moment because my job, it's not really about psychology. It's not really digging into your brain and kind of finding the secrets and, you know, repairing, uh, you know, electrical currents in there. It's not that. My job is to help give kids the mental skills that they don't have that they need to deal with the environment. Really, it's kind of, it's that plain and simple. Well, where were you when my kid was coming up? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really, really awesome. And I tell kids, I say, look, you have a physical coach that helps you deal with forehand, backhand, sir, right? Yep, okay. I am just the head coach. So I help you align your physical skills with your mental skills. You know when your nerves feel like they're out of control and you're like, ah, don't think I'm going to be able to play because I can't deal with these? Well, I am the person that helps you figure out how to deal with these so that you can play, that they don't get in the way, and you're actually able to perform more optimally. You're actually able to play tennis versus playing playing the head game, playing the up and down mm-hmm. emotional roller coaster game. So well, I, I mean, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I love my job. It's it's and again, it's 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 about getting the skills for most kids, especially 11, 12, 13 ish, 14 getting the skills that they don't have. And when you're working with these kids, is it, are you working with them in an office setting? Are you working with them, you know, over the phone? How does that work? Yeah. Another good question. Uh, Kids come to my office. I also work by Skype and by phone. I work with people all over the, all over the world. So, you know, one of my junior tennis players is in Spain. Um, and sometimes parents ask me, well, which works better? And, you know, many, many years ago, there was this theory of, well, yeah, you got to be paying attention to body language, and so it's probably better to have them in your office. And, yeah, well, there's not a lot of body language that happens here in my office. And um, I also teach graduate school. And one of the things I always say to my students is, you know, what if you were blind and you were doing this work? Well, you'd have to have a heightened sense of hearing. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's sort of similar when you're on the phone with a client. This, there's just, you know, intonation changes, language changes. There's certain things that change sometimes that is very similar to, like, changes in body language. So this work works in all of those modalities. So you're very accessible, which is great. I mean, yep. you're on the West Coast. We don't have to be in your city to, to take advantage of the work that you can do, which is awesome. I, I have to ask you, you know, my I have three kids, and my youngest is my tennis player, and he's now a grown-up. So, um, but he needed this kind of work coming up through juniors, but he was so resistant to even giving it a try and which was frustrating for me because, you know, you see your kid um, having trouble handling the emotions on court, having trouble handling the nerves on court. And you know that there is somebody out there that can give them the skills to do that, but they're, they've just shut their mind down. So, and I've asked this of, of other, um, I don't even know how to refer to you. I mean, I, I'm referring to you as a sports psychologist, but, but yeah. you're specialized. Um, so when I've had other people that work on the mental side of the game on this podcast, the, the, one of the questions that always came up for me is, how, how do you get through to a kid who comes in with this, you know, six-foot brick wall um, built up around them to, you know, how do you break through that barrier and and get them to open up and, and be receptive to what you have to offer? That can definitely be difficult. Yeah. I mean, again, because there's still such a stigma around psychology and working with a psychologist and, um, oh, I play tennis and then I got to see somebody about my head? Like, wait, how, you know. Um, so going back to what I said earlier, I, well, so when I'm going to bring, um, bring on a child in my practice, I do a lot of work beforehand with that. So, for example, this process for me is a really delicate process, and I really want it to work for everyone. Otherwise, it's not going to work, and I don't, you know, I don't want to waste anyone's time or money. So I have developed a process that, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like works really, really well. So what happens in the process is, I get like a contact form from my website or someone contacts me just over email or phone or whatever. And I call them back and set up a free 30 minute phone consultation with the parent or the parents first. And I talk to them, tell me what's going on. Tell me how I can help. I answer any question they have. I talk a little bit about how I can be helpful. And then we talk about, okay, so how was the conversation? Good. Are you ready to move forward? Yes. Okay, so the next step in the process is for me to speak to your child. Well, you know, my child, I don't know, they're a little bit resistant about this. So sometimes it'll go one, you know, one or two ways or both. It will, 
be, okay, let's talk about how you can have that conversation with your, with your child. And here is how I am going to have the conversation with them. So sometimes parents will talk, well, they'll always, they'll always hopefully talk to their child first. Um, sometimes they'll use a little bit of the information I gave them and then plop them on a phone call with me. And again, I really, look, this process is really normal. It's not like I feel like I have to normalize the process because it's not normal. I mean, I understand that there's a lot of fear around it, which is why I say, well, you know, let me talk to your child and normalize the process. Um, but I try to make this sound, and it is, really cool. I mean, honestly, I, I have had very resistant kids. I had, so this isn't tennis, this is fencing, but I had a kid who is like a top fencer in the United States. He's 17, and wow, his dad was like, this is, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Well, he decided he wanted to do the, 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 his sort of free 30-minute consult in my office. So they came in. They sat down. We, we chat, he and I chatted a little bit. And he walked out. His dad emailed me and said, he thought you were so cool. Now, look, it's not my goal to be cool necessarily, but it is my job just to, you know, be relatable, to be authentic, to be genuine. And I, I feel like I do that really well with kids. So I do the free 30-minute consult with parents, and then I do another free 30-minute consult with, with the kids, the child. Um, I actually have another one coming in this week who's a little bit resistant. And it generally goes a long way taking that time up front to really build the relationship and get to know the parents and get to know the child and to say, hey, I know you're scared, but do you want to continue to let this get in your way so that you're not able to play tennis the way you want to play tennis? And, you know, when I sort of talk through how the process works, look, we're going to give you the skills that you need, right? Like you would never, ever just go out and like hit your forehand without practicing it probably every single day, right? Yeah. So why would you go out in the tennis court without having a mental game plan? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and especially I think boys a little more than girls, is this whole notion of self-awareness and, you know, the, their perception of how they are versus other people's perception based on witnessing <laughs> behaviors or whatever <laughs> is often very different, right? So, uh -huh. you know, they'll say, I don't have a problem. I'm not nervous. I don't get nervous. But yet watching them as an outsider and, and even as a parent, an outsider, you know that your child is exhibiting behaviors that indicate that he or she is dealing with nerves. Mm -hmm. And so when they say, but I don't get nervous, 
but I don't, I, I don't have a problem with anger. You know, that's where I feel like as a parent, it gets so frustrating. And, and that's where to me, the work you do can be so incredibly valuable because you can help them hopefully become more self-aware and, you know, be more attuned to the triggers that are causing these, you know, from my perspective, embarrassing behaviors. Yes, yes. And when I have these kind of conversations with parents around, you know, I don't think my son is that self-aware on what's really going on. I mean, you know, I see this and, you know, he sees that. Um, Again, like, for me, then, you know, in that free 30-minute consult, it's it's really about digging a little bit. So tell me, you know, tell me about, like, you know, before before a match, you know, how are you feeling? What's going on? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There are, there have been some kids who um, have been absolutely harder to reach um, than other kids, but, um, you know, the information you're, you're, you know, you just gave right now, is, that's valuable information. And fortunately, that's information I usually get, get from the parents. So, I'm able to to scratch the surface a little bit with that and dig into that, and um, kids are able to boys are able to see to see the benefit of it. But yeah, I mean these skills. I mean the thing about these skills is they're not just sports driven, right? Sports is where they come up, but these are skills. I work with pretty much all of my kids on, you know, school, sport, uh, life. Uh, You know, we work on talking to parents, talking to coaches, advocacy, like all of that stuff. So these skills, you know, they have, as you know, they have huge implication, not just for the sport, um, but for everywhere. And, you know, that's the other great thing about this work is, I just see kids leaving here feeling so much more in control of their emotions and more confident and motivated in a different way. Um, yeah, again, I mean, this work, this work is amazing for me. So it's fantastic. You know, yeah. one of the, the things that comes up often, and I'm sure you hear this a lot in your practice, is the whole issue of cheating in junior tennis. And, you know, we've tackled that issue so many times on Parenting Aces, both on the website and in the podcast. And um, and I think, you know, for kids that face that on the court, um, it you know, learning how to manage their emotions when something is happening to them that they can't control mm-hmm. is huge because we all know the kids are going to have to deal with that at some point in their junior tennis journey. So can you talk a little bit about cheating in tennis? And and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on both the kid that's the recipient of the cheating, you know, being cheated, and the kid who's doing the actual cheating. And 
I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hoping that you've worked with both and maybe can share some insights on both sides of that. Sure. Yeah, cheating. You're right. It's one of those areas where if someone's going to cheat, it, yeah, it feels out of control and it feels yucky. It's like someone, you know, it feels personal. It feels like something, someone's doing something to you. And that's where I do work a lot in this area of, okay, let's think about this. Do you have any control over that situation? No. Well, then what are your options? Well, my options are to, to let it go. Well, obviously that's easier said than done, but that is the place where I try to move all of my kids' clients is to this place of, yeah, if you don't have any control over something, then your option really is to let it go. And ironically, I, uh, several weeks ago, I did a podcast for uh, Orange Mud, and uh, we were talking about this, this uh, thinking around having control or not having control. And I was talking about this control tree, this little chart that I put together that I, I give my, my clients, especially my kids, and they hang it up. And it basically says, okay, do you have any control? No. Well, what's your option? Let it go. And so when they see that, it starts to get them in the habit of, okay, just need to, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to, you know, move on to something else or reframe this or there's many different ways we can go with that. But the other side of the control tree is, do you have full control or partial control? And really getting them to think through that. And then how do you move forward in, in either of those situations? Now, and so for a kid being cheated, what, I mean, do they have partial control in that situation? I would say no. I would say it's one of those situations that they have to learn to let go of. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, and this is a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a little bit of the harder side of it is that, you know, we take these things personally. Kids take these things personally. And that's kind of another another arm of the conversation is talking to them about how, you know, I bet this, I bet this isn't personal. I bet this is probably just something this, you know, this kid does all the time. Uh, I mean, I, I do have... You know, one of my juniors was really getting really, really angry about the cheating. And we had this very conversation. The conversation that after that was about how is this anger around the cheating impacting you and your tennis? And when we start to uncover that, And they start to really realize, oh, yeah, wow, okay, the the cheating happened, and then, you know, I basically lost that set. It's like, yeah, because why? What was happening? And we talked about that. Kids kids are really smart. They, They really get it. And when you're able to, like, really, like, peel the layers back for them, they go, oh, okay, well, yeah. Okay, this, that kid cheated, but it's not impacting really that kid. 
it's impacting me and my ability to stay in the match and play tennis. Right. But and so recognizing that is one thing. Yep. Being able to control how you manage it in real time is where you have to have the skills, right? And Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, most kids, if you point it out to them, okay, you got hooked in the match, and here's what happened. You know, first you not only lost that game but wound up losing the set, as you were sitting down between the sets, you know, and had time to think about it, your anger really got the better of you, and either you used it in a positive manner to come back and win the match, or you let it overtake you and you self-destructed, which is, I think, more the typical thing that happens. Um, So what if next time you get cheated, Instead of, you know, self-destructing, you do what, Dr. Michelle? <laughs> what? What can you do? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Because and, I think that's, that's, as a parent, where you get so frustrated because it's like, well, you can tell them don't self-destruct, don't get angry. Well, okay, great, you know, but you're not the one out there getting hooked when you're working your tail off to win this match and somebody's stealing it from you because that's how it feels. Right. So you're absolutely right. And, you know, you, you have a very acute sense of, you know, this whole process, which I love. This is this, what you're talking about really is, those are the critical moments because they get cheated. They're going to get angry. They get cheated, they're going to get angry, right? We know that a situ- when a situation happens, they're going to respond, and they're going to respond in the same way until, until I can help them respond in a different way in that moment. So let me talk about a couple of things that I okay. do with my kids. One is, and this isn't, mm, it, yeah, it could, it could pertain to cheating, one is, so for example, my, my junior player in Spain right now, um, you know, used to get angry about the sun, the wind, the moon, the stars, you know, cheating, <laughs> all kinds of things, right? So mm-hmm. this exercise I've given him, I've also given other tennis players is, okay, when you get to the court, you're going to point out all the uncontrollables. So he gets to the court and points out all the uncontrollables. And if cheating, if cheating is one of those, those things, then I, I would say, okay, we don't know cheating is going to happen, but I'm gonna, I want you to throw cheating in as a possibility. Now, you might go, what? But this works because... You're already thinking through, here are the things that I already know are out of my control. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say all these things and sometimes they'll say them out loud. It just depends on where they're at. I am gonna point all these out and if I'm somewhere where I can say them out loud, I'm gonna say them out loud and it really is almost as if they're gone. It brings this awareness, this different kind of 
really conscious awareness because what happens in these moments with these uncontrollable emotions and situations that arise is we are not expecting them. So that's when our brain kicks into like, oh, oh, and then we react. Now, does this always help for every single thing? Well, we can't point out every possible uncontrollable thing, but it has been miraculous. The other thing, one of the other things, so I just want to talk about three things. The other, one of the other things that is really critical is that in practice, we do what's called simulation training. This can be a little bit difficult sometimes, but, you know, if your kid's playing sets, that cheating happens. I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. So glad to have you back with us for this episode of the Parenting Aces podcast. I am coming at you from Atlanta, Georgia, where it is hot, hot, hot and humid, humid, humid. And I have been out in it with our Saul Schwartz Save College Tennis All-In Tournament that happened in Atlanta this past week, which was phenomenal. And for those of you who were there and I got a chance to meet, that was amazing. I, I always love meeting fellow tennis parents and people kind of going through the journey and learning along the way. And for those of you who weren't able to be there, well, you just missed a great event and you better sign your kid up for next year's event or you can sign up for the Baltimore tournament, which is coming up August 12th and 13th. And that link to register will be in the show notes. So be sure and check that out. This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the mental side of tennis with Dr. Michelle Clear, a sports psychologist who is based in the Bay Area of California, and she is going to talk with us about helping our kids handle themselves better on the court and off the court also, but really helping them learn how to deal with the frustrations that they face during their tennis training, their practices, their tournament play, and things like what to do when you're frustrated with an official or what to do when you're faced with a cheater or what to do when you're just not having your best day tennis-wise on the court. And making sure that our kids have those tools is a gift that we can give them as their parents. And Dr. Michelle is going to talk to us about how we can work with her and learn more about how to help our kids in this way. So I hope you enjoy the podcast this week. Be sure and check out the show notes for some important links. And without further ado, Dr. Michelle. I am here with Dr. Michelle Clear, and Michelle, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast this week. Thank you for joining us. Lisa, thanks so much for having me on. I I really appreciate your time, and uh, I'm really excited to be on, and uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that there are people like you out there doing this kind of work, so thanks again. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So for my listeners' benefit, because um, in case they haven't gone to your website or aren't familiar with your work, can you give us a little bit of background on your education and how you came to get involved in the world of tennis? Absolutely. 
I have a master's degree in sports psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology. And um, I, let's see, how did I, how did I get into working with tennis players? Well, I've been doing this work for about 15 years. And along that time, my path has gone in many, many different directions. I've worked with many, many different kinds of athletes. And one day I, uh, someone got in touch with me to work with a professional tennis player. So I started working with a professional tennis player and just really liked it. I had had exposure working with tennis players on a smaller scale, a few kids here and there, but not too much. And then when I got this professional tennis player, I realized, oh, my gosh, you know, I I love tennis. I love the game. And um, several years after that, uh, I developed my Beating the Tennis Demon system and just started getting more and more into tennis. I've been to um, PTR for mm, probably the last five out of six years, and I've um, spoken there and done some speaking with USPTA. And, and really just so my listeners, in, in case my listeners aren't familiar yeah, with those, those are two, no, that's okay. Those are two coaching certifying organizations, PTR and USPTA. So, um, so you, you've gone and spoken at the coaching organizations. Yes, spoken at the coaching organization. Um, more for um, PTR, um, several years there, uh, five I think I'm, I'm at right now, and USPTA a couple times. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving tennis. And again, I developed this beating the tennis demon system and it's been really, really beneficial for my, my clients and, um, just, uh, you know, starting to work with Mike Burrell and, uh, Women's Tennis Coaches Association and, you know, I've written for Tennis Pro Magazine, so, Really, over the last probably, I'd say, five or six years, really have started to gain momentum in the tennis industry, and I, I just love it. I, I play a little bit of tennis, not a lot of tennis. I play a little bit of tennis. Uh, I love the sport, and I just really, really love working with tennis players, and it's kind of one of those areas that... I, I guess I never really expected was going to necessarily be my niche, but it turned out to be my niche, and I'm I'm actually really really happy about it. Well, let's take a step back for a minute, and because I've had people on the podcast over the years that you know work with athletes on the mental side of the game, and when I have the opportunity to talk to somebody who is an actual trained sports psychologist, I mean you have a master's and a PhD. Um, I think it's it's good to maybe talk a little bit about what that work entails. So as a sports psychologist, what is it that you do and can do for young athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I really love that question because it's such a foundational question. And 
there's still so many people that really, really don't, I don't want to say they don't understand the mental side, but I think all tennis players understand that the mental side is really important for tennis. But then they sort of go, well, yeah, but I'm not really sure what to do about that. Right. Well, so, and, and so, you know, most of them work very hard on the physical part. They work yep, hard on the yep. court. They work hard in the gym. Um, you know, they're starting to work a little bit harder on the nutrition piece of things, though there's yep. still a lot of stuff that needs to happen in that arena. But but I think people are, you know, even still, people are leery of, you know, this whole idea of working on the mental side and what, you know, oh, my gosh, what might come up and what is that going to say about me as a human being, right. and as a tennis player. And um, so I am I'm here to provide an opportunity for you to dispel some myths and rumors. I love that. That's one of my favorite jobs. I I actually do that every day when I have a consult with, uh, you know, particularly, well, I mean parents, but particularly kids. It's all about demystifying this because people see psychology and they go, oh, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with me. Right. And, you know, I want to tell people out there there isn't anything wrong with you. So let me back up a little bit. And I'll, if, I'll explain the process the way that I, this, this process of kind of mental skills like I, like I do with parents. Perfect. So that's our audience. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. Perfect. So we, you know, we grow up, kids grow up, and as we grow up, we bump into difficulties, adversity, barriers, and we just sort of figure out how to deal with it. No one sits us down and really talks to us about how to deal with competitive pressure, how to deal with nerves, how to deal with overthinking, how to, you know, what, what is confidence? How do, you, how do you get confidence? How do you lose confidence? No one sits us down and has this conversation. So... As we go through the world, as we go through school and tennis, we just sort of figure out how to deal with things. And what ends up happening is that many times, because we sort of are just grasping for things in our environment, many times the way that we figure out how to deal with things is not always the best way. For example, you know, a lot of kids cry on the tennis court, and these are actual things I've heard, right, from kids and from parents, sure, cry, sure. On, cry on the tennis court, throw their rackets, uh, you know, whack a ball, slam their rackets on the court, probably things you and most people out there have seen or heard about. And again, this is the way that that child has figured out how to get out, how to let go, how to deal with whatever is going on in that moment. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit because I have gotten so many phone calls from parents who are like, I just don't know what to do. I just, my child is crying after the match or crying in the middle of the match and, banging their racket on the tennis court, and my first instinct is to pull them out. 
So I say to that parent, well, you can do that. It's absolutely your prerogative to do that. But just know that right now your child is just doing whatever they can do to sort of deal with the environment. And that's the only way they know how to deal with the environment. So if they had the skills to be able to deal with the environment in a different way, they would. I mean, let's think about it. Who, what kid wants to be standing in the middle of a match crying? Right. What kid wants to be standing in the middle of their match, like, you know, really angry and slamming their racket on the court? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't really know of any. Right. Well, and not only do they not want to do it, then when they get coded by an official, right, because that's what they've done, then that presents a whole, you know, related set of issues to deal with. Totally. Totally. Yeah, and they feel humiliated and they feel embarrassed. And, you know, some of this is the reason why many times when I get a 12 or 13-year-old tennis player here, the parent's like, well, you know, he or she just wants to quit. And I said, well, yes, of course. I mean, you know, if their only option is to deal with the mental ups and downs on the court in this way and they're feeling embarrassed, and humiliated, then I want to quit too. Sure. So the great, great, I, I, I love my job. I, I mean, I, I get up every day and I just can't wait for the next moment because my job, it's not really about psychology. It's not really digging into your brain and kind of finding the secrets and, you know, repairing, uh, you know, electrical currents in there. It's not that. My job is to help give kids the mental skills that they don't have that they need to deal with the environment. Really, it's kind of, it's that plain and simple. Well, where were you when my kid coming up? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really, really awesome. And I tell kids, I say, look, you have a physical coach that helps you deal with forehand, backhand, serve, right? Yep, okay. I am just the head coach. So I help you align your physical skills with your mental skills. You know when your nerves feel like they're out of control and you're like, ah, don't think I'm going to be able to play because I can't deal with these? Well, I am the person that helps you figure out how to deal with these so that you can play, that they don't get in the way, and you're actually able to perform more optimally. You're actually able to play tennis versus playing, playing the head game, playing the up-and-down mm-hmm. emotional roller coaster game. So well, I, I yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I love my job. It's it's and again, it's 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 about getting the skills for most kids, especially 11, 12, 13 ish, 14, getting the skills that they don't have. So and when you're you know, working I mean, with these kids, is it are you working with them in an office setting? Or are you working with them? 
you know, over the phone? How does that work? Yeah, another good question. Uh, kids come to my office. I also work by Skype and by phone. I work with people all over the, all over the world. So, you know, one of my junior tennis players is in Spain. Um, and sometimes parents ask me, well, which works better? And, you know, many, many years ago, there was this theory of, well, yeah, you got to be paying attention to body language, and so it's probably better to have them in your office. And, yeah, well, there's not a lot of body language that happens here in my office. And um, I also teach graduate school. And one of the things I always say to my students is, you know, what if you were blind and you were doing this work? Well, you'd have to have a heightened sense of hearing. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of similar when you're on the phone with a client. There's just, you know, intonation changes, language changes. There are certain things that change sometimes that is very similar to, like, changes in body language. So this work works in all of those modalities. So you're very accessible, which is great. I mean, yep. you're on the West Coast. We don't have to be in your city to, to take advantage of the work that you can do, which is awesome. I, I have to ask you, you know, my I have three kids, and my youngest is my tennis player, and he's now a grown-up. So, um, but he needed this kind of work coming up through juniors, but he was so resistant to even giving it a try and which was frustrating for me because you know you see your kid um having trouble handling the emotions on court having trouble handling the nerves on court and you know that there is somebody out there that can give them the skills to do that but they're they've just shut their mind down so and i've asked this of of other um I don't even know how to refer to you. I mean, I, I'm referring to you as a sports psychologist, but, but yeah. you're specialized. Um, so when I've had other people that work on the mental side of the game on this podcast, the, the, one of the questions that always came up for me is, how, how do you get through to a kid who comes in with this, you know, six-foot brick wall um, built up around them to, you know, how do you break through that barrier and, and get them to open up and, and be receptive to what you have to offer? That can definitely be difficult. Yeah. I mean, again, because there's still such a stigma around psychology and working with a psychologist and, um, oh, I play tennis and then I got to see somebody about my head? Like, wait, how, you know. Um, so going back to what I said earlier, I, well, so when I'm going to bring, um, bring on a child in my practice, I do a lot of work beforehand with that. So for example, this process for me is a really delicate process and I really want it to work for everyone. Otherwise, it's not going to work, and I don't, you know, I don't want to waste anyone's time or money. So I have 
developed a process that, excuse me, I feel like works really, really well. So what happens in the process is I get like a contact form from my website or someone contacts me just over email or phone or whatever, and I call them back and set up a free 30-minute phone consultation with the parent or the parents first. And I talk to them, tell me what's going on. Tell me how I can help. I answer any question they have. I talk a little bit about how I can be helpful. And then we talk about, okay, so how was the conversation? Good. Are you ready to move forward? Yes. Okay, so the next step in the process is for me to speak to your child. Well, you know, my child, I don't know, they're a little bit resistant about this. So sometimes it'll go one, you know, one or two ways or both. It will be, okay, let's talk about how you can have that conversation with your, with your child. And here is how I am going to have the conversation with them. So sometimes parents will talk, well, they'll always, they'll always hopefully talk to their child first. Um, sometimes they'll use a little bit of the information I gave them and then plop them on a phone call with me. And again, I really, look, this process is really normal. It's not like I feel like I have to normalize the process because it's not normal. I mean, I understand that there's a lot of fear around it, which is why I say, well, you know, let me talk to your child and normalize the process. Um, but I try to make this sound, and it is, really cool. I mean, honestly, I, I have had very resistant kids. I had, so this isn't tennis, this is fencing, but I had a kid who is like a top, Center in the United States, he's 17, and wow, his dad was like, this is, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Well, he decided he wanted to do the, 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 his sort of free 30-minute consult in my office, so they came in, they sat down, we, we chat, he and I chatted a little bit, and he walked out, his dad emailed me and said, he thought you were so cool. Now, Look, it's not my goal to be cool necessarily, but it is my job just to, you know, be relatable, to be authentic, to be genuine. And I, I feel like I do that really well with kids. So I do the free 30-minute consult with parents, and then I do another free 30-minute consult with, with the kids, the child. Um, I actually have another one coming in this week who's a little bit resistant and – it generally goes a long way, taking that time up front to really build the relationship and get to know the parents and get to know the child and to say, hey, I know you're scared, but do you want to continue to let this get in your way so that you're not able to play tennis the way you want to play tennis? And, you know, when I sort of talk through how the process works, look, we're going to give you the skills that you need, right? Like you would never, ever just go out and like hit your forehand without practicing it probably every single day, right? Yeah. So why would you go out in the tennis court without having a mental game plan? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me and especially – 
I think boys a little more than girls is this whole notion of self-awareness and, you know, the, their perception of how they are versus other people's perception based on witnessing <laughs> behaviors or whatever <laughs> is often very different, right? So, uh-huh. I, I, you know, they'll say, I don't have a problem. I'm not nervous. I don't get nervous. But yet watching them as an outsider and and even as a parent, an outsider, you know that your child is exhibiting behaviors that indicate that he or she is dealing with nerves. Mm-hmm. And so when they say, but I don't get nervous, but I don't, I, I don't have a problem with anger, you know, that's where I feel like as a parent, it gets so frustrating. And, and that's where, to me, the work you do can be so incredibly valuable because you can help them hopefully become more self-aware and, you know, be more attuned to the triggers that are causing these, you know, from my perspective, embarrassing behaviors. Yes, yes. And when I have these kind of conversations with parents around you know, I don't think my son is that self-aware on what's really going on. I mean, you know, I see this and, you know, he sees that. Um, again, like for me, then, you know, in that free 30-minute consult, it's it's really about digging a little bit. So tell me, you know, tell me about like, you know, before before a match, you know, how are you feeling? What's going on? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There are... There have been some kids who um, have been absolutely harder to reach um, than other kids, but, um, you know, the information you're, you're, you know, you just gave right now, is, that's valuable information. And fortunately, that's information I usually get, get from the parents, so I'm able to, to scratch the surface a little bit with that and dig into that, and um, kids are able to, boys are able to see to see the benefit of it. But, yeah, I mean, these skills, I mean, the thing about these skills is they're not just sports-driven. Right. Sports is where they come up, but these are skills. I work with pretty much all of my kids on, you know, school, sport, uh, life. Uh, you know, we work on talking to parents, talking to coaches, advocacy, like all of that stuff. So these skills, you know, they have, as you know, they have huge implication, not just for the sport, um, but for everywhere. And, you know, that's the other great thing about this work is I just see kids leaving here feeling so much more in control of their emotions and more confident and motivated in a different way um yeah again i mean this work this work is amazing for me so it's fantastic you know one of the the things that comes up often and i'm sure you hear this a lot in your practice is the whole issue of cheating in junior tennis and you know we've tackled that issue 
so many times on Parenting Aces, both on the website and in the podcast. And, um, and I think, you know, for kids that face that on the court, um, it, you know, learning how to manage their emotions when something is happening to them that they can't control mm-hmm. is huge because we all know the kids are going to have to deal with that at some point in their junior tennis journey. So can you talk a little bit about cheating in tennis? And and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on both the kid that's the recipient of the cheating, you know, being cheated, and the kid who's doing the actual cheating. And I'm I'm guessing, I'm hoping that you've worked with both and maybe can share some insights on both sides of that. Sure. Yeah, cheating. You're right. It's one of those areas where if someone's going to cheat, it yeah, it feels out of control and it feels yucky. It's like someone, you know, it feels personal. It feels like something someone's doing something to you. And... That's where I do work a lot in this area of, okay, let's think about this. Do you have any control over that situation? No. Well, then what are your options? Well, my options are to to let it go. Well, obviously that's easier said than done, but that is the place where I try to move all of my kids' clients is to this place of, yeah, if you don't have any control over something, then your option really is to let it go. And ironically, I uh, several weeks ago, I did a podcast for uh, Orange Mud, and uh, we were talking about this, this uh, thinking around having control or not having control. And I was talking about this control tree, this little chart that I put together that I, I give my my clients, especially my kids, and they hang it up, and it basically says, okay, do you have any control? No. Well, what's your option? Let it go. And so when they see that, it starts to get them in the habit of, okay, just need to, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to, you know, move on to something else or reframe this, or there's many different ways we can go with that. But the other side of the control tree is, do you have full control or partial control? And really getting them to think through that. And then how do you move forward in, in either of those situations? Now, and so for a kid being cheated, what, I mean, do they have partial control in that situation? I would say no. I would say it's one of those situations that they have to learn to let go of. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, and this is a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a little bit of the harder side of it is that, you know, we take these things personally. Kids take these things personally. And that's kind of another another arm of the conversation is talking to them about how, you know, I bet this, I bet this isn't personal. I bet this is probably just something this, you know, this kid does all the time. Uh, I mean, I I do have... You know, one of my juniors was really getting really, really angry about the cheating. And we had this very conversation. 
the conversation that after that was about how is this anger around the cheating impacting you and your tenants? And when we start to uncover that and they start to really realize, oh, yeah, wow, okay, the, the cheating happened and then, you know, I basically lost that set. It's like, yeah, because why? What was happening? And we talked about that. Kids, kids are really smart. They, they really get it. And when you're able to, like, really, like, peel the layers back for them, they go, oh, okay, well, yeah, okay, this, that kid cheated, but it's not impacting really that kid. It's impacting me and my ability to stay in the match and play tennis. Right. But and so recognizing that is one thing. Yeah. Being able to control how you manage it in real time is where you have to have the skills, right? And yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, most kids, if you point it out to them, okay, you got hooked in the match, and here's what happened. You know, first you not only lost that game, but wound up losing the set. As you were sitting down between the sets, you know, and had time to think about it, your anger really got the better of you and either you used it in a positive manner to come back and win the match or you let it overtake you and you self-destructed, which is, I think, more the typical thing that happens. Um, So what if next time you get cheated instead of, you know, self-destructing, you do – what, Dr. Michelle? <laughs> what? What can you do? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Because and, I think that's, that's, as a parent, where you get so frustrated because it's like, well, you can tell them don't self-destruct, don't get angry. Well, okay, great, you know, but you're not the one out there getting hooked when you're working your tail off to win this match and somebody's stealing it from you because that's how it feels. Right. So, you're absolutely right, and, you know, you you have a very acute sense of, you know, this whole process, which I love. This is, this what you're talking about really is, those are the critical moments because they get cheated, they're going to get angry. They get cheated, they're going to get angry, right? We know that a situ- when a situation happens, they're going to respond, and they're going to respond in the same way until – until I can help them respond in a different way in that moment. So let me talk about a couple of things that I okay. do with my kids. One is, and this isn't, mm, it, yeah, it could, it could pertain to cheating. One is, so for example, my, my junior player in Spain right now, um, you know, used to get angry about the sun, the wind, the moon, the stars, you know, cheating, <laughs> all kinds of things, right? So mm-hmm. this exercise I've given him, I've also given other tennis players, is, okay, when you get to the court, you're going to point out all the uncontrollables. So he gets to the court and points out all the uncontrollables. And if cheating, if cheating is one of those 
those things, then I, I would say, okay, we don't know cheating is going to happen, but I'm going to, I want you to throw cheating in as a possibility. Now, you might go, what? But this works because you're already thinking through, here are the things that I already know are out of my control. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say all these things and sometimes they'll say them out loud. It just depends on where they're at. I am going to point all these out. And if I'm somewhere where I can say them out loud, I'm going to say them out loud. And it really is almost as if they're gone. It brings this awareness, this different kind of really conscious awareness because what happens in these moments with these uncontrollable emotions and situations that arise is we are not expecting them. So that's when our brain kicks into like, oh, oh, and then we react. Now, does this always help for every single thing? Well, we can't point out every possible uncontrollable thing, but it has been miraculous. The other thing, one of the other things, so I just want to talk about three things. The other, one of the other things that is really critical is that in practice, we do what's called simulation training. This can be a little bit difficult sometimes, but, you know, if your kid's playing sets, that cheating happens, that other things happen that are going to produce similar, similar things. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes a little bit hard to create those situations, um, but if we can, we do. The third thing that we really, really work on, and, you know, again, this is, this is a really critical piece, especially going back to um, um, what you were talking about, how do you get them in that moment? Yes. Yep, it's practice. So we figure out in that moment when that cheating happens, where else can we put your, where, where should your focus be? Well, my focus should be, you know, on what's going to happen next. Okay, so how do we get you there? Do you, you know, do you say ready, set? Do you have a mantra? Do you take a couple of deep breaths? Do you, and how do we connect you to that versus the anger? Well, a couple ways. Um, practicing those skills sometimes in daily life, if these kind of angry situations pop up, if there's an opportunity to practice these things in practice. Um, but the most helpful is, so for example, if I was going to have a client use, I'm just going to use a couple of deep breaths in that moment when that cheating, okay, cheating happens. Okay. I'm going to take a couple of deep breaths. What I would do is I would have them first start practicing using deep breathing which there's so many benefits to deep breathing, but having them practice using deep breathing just in general. And then I'd have them on an index card in their tennis bag, write down deep breathing. And, you know, some, some put cheating happens, deep breath. There's a lot of ways to sort of make that happen. And then it's reinforcing that and reinforcing that mm-hmm. and sometimes refining that. 
Um, so those are a few of the ways that I really help clients get at those moments. Cool. So do you work with the junior coaches as well? If you're working with a player, does the coach, is the coach part of the process here? Because it, you know, from what you were saying about working on these things during practice, um, I mean, I know my, my son had a coach who would purposely cheat him in practice sets um, to help him get better at dealing with it, uh, which used to drive him absolutely batty. But you know, so so are the coaches in on your plan? Uh, the way that I get coaches in on the plan, and, you know, this is just another critical component of working with kids, is um, having them talk to their coach. Having them Having the kids to talk to the coach. Yep, yep. Okay. This whole piece around advocacy, advocating for yourself and being able to talk to the coach about what what you need, um, what you maybe don't like, uh, which, you know, that can all be scary. And, again, you know, many of my kids are a little skeptical about how to do that. But we walk through, okay, how do you do that? And and they they figure out how to make that happen. Yeah. Um, it's just an important, it's a really important step in this whole process of, um, you know, not only being a good tennis player, but again, like, you know, school, life, everything else. So um, I really, really work with them on how, you know, how do you make that happen? How do you talk to coach about, um, you know, maybe setting up, you know, five minutes of sort of what we call simultation um, um, simulation training? How do you set that up? with the coach? How do you have that conversation? Uh, and um, I would say that that is the most beneficial. I'm not adverse at all at talking to coaches. Um, I think sometimes due to busy schedules and other things, I think sometimes it's hard to get their attention. Um, I'm not adverse to it. I, I, I do sometimes talk to coaches um, obviously, I go out and talk to coaches at conferences, um, definitely talk to parents, uh, but, yeah, really try to work with the kid to talk to the other sort of people in their lives. Well, and I think, you know, for a, a young athlete, learning how to talk with adults in a respectful manner, yep. respectful but also being able to make an argument for your case is a tremendous skill that, like you said, it takes, it takes them to a different plane in every other aspect of their life if they have that skill. And um, I know for some kids, you know, being able to do it respectfully, respectfully is the key word, and it's, it takes a while to get them to that place where either, you know, some kids I think are so shy that it's not that they're being disrespectful. It's just that they don't have enough confidence to advocate positively for themselves. But then there are those kids who are so confrontational that the respect goes out the window and then they don't get what they want. You know, so finding that happy medium is, I mean, developing that set of skills is huge 
because it's it's a skill set you use every day in your life. Yeah, yeah. You know the challenge the challenge in in life for kids is that for so many years they're used to people telling them what to do, right? Teachers, parents, coaches are just used to people telling them what to do, and they don't know how to make that switch. But you're right. Yeah. It's very, it's very, very critical that they learn how to make that switch. Um, and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty scary for them. And, you know, that's why we, you know, I do a lot of role playing with kids and, um, you know, try to, try to, again, demystify it a little bit and, you know, also help them to figure out how do I start this on a small scale, right? We don't want to go from zero mm-hmm. to 100, but, you know, right. how do we maybe go to, like, you know, 15% um, and then get a little success with that and then, you know, move from there. There have mm-hmm. been there have been times where I have sat down with a coach and an athlete. There's been times where I've sat down with a coach and an athlete and a parent. There have been times where I've sat down with two parents and a child in my office. It really can happen any number of ways, but again, the most optimal thing for me is that that any child that I have in my practice that we at least have the conversation around having the other conversations. Mhm. You know, it's funny this this theme seems to be just really um showing itself in a very predominant way in all of my podcasts recently and the theme is communication and mm-hmm. you know whether it's communication between a parent and a child, a child and a coach, a parent and a coach um you know, and and, um, and and I include you in that coach category. Um, the the whole notion of getting better at communicating seems to be at the root of everything. And if we can get better at it, and in fact, I I recently said to my husband, we've been married almost thirty two years. You know, we've known each other a really long time. And when couples have been together for a long time, they tend to develop a shorthand, right? And Mm -hmm. you use your shorthand and you just expect that the other person knows exactly what you mean. And we just recently had this conversation that, you know what, I'm not always clear on what your shorthand means. And when I'm not clear, I need to ask you and then I need you to explain it to me so that I do understand what you mean, so that I don't make an assumption about something that's not at all what you intended. <laughs> you <know>? and, <laughs> and I think, you know, we do this in, in our relationships of all types, not just in our romantic relationships. We do it with our kids, with our bosses, with our coworkers, with our friends, um, with our coaches. And I, you know, so for me, anytime there is an opportunity to become a better communicator, then I think we have to jump at that. And I think that's what is the basis of what you do is, you know, teaching these kids not just to be better communicators with their coaches and parents and opponents, but also with themselves, right, to 
yeah. really pay attention to what's going on inside their own heads and understanding it and deciphering it and acting on it appropriately. So I, I'm, I'm using this as a segue because we're, we're coming to the end of our hour and I want to make sure we talk about your book. <laughs> um, so you have this book, Beating the Tennis Demons, and I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I, you know, full disclosure, but um, it is is on my short list of things to get to. Um, but you know, I'm curious, like, why did you think we need another book on the mental side of tennis? Because there there's a whole group of books out there, and what sets yours apart? I mean, you know, compel us to to pick it up. Well, I didn't necessarily think that we needed another book on tennis. Um, I, this is a, it's a very small ebook, which I'm actually going to be revamping, um, this probably in the next two or three months to broaden it out a little bit. But really what I found, Lisa, is that there are just a, a few areas in tennis where the demons pop in. And I started using this system in my private practice and just wanted to have kind of a little guide, a little ebook to, to go along with it. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, we need another book on the mental side of tennis, but it was more about, wow, I have this really awesome way of working with tennis players that, has shown proven results for professional tennis players, juniors, age groupers, everyone that I just really wanted to share. And again, the the ebook is, I don't even know, it's maybe 25 pages at the most. But the other great thing about it is that it has the, the sort of system that I have developed through beating the tennis demons is they, they're all also components that professional tennis players have always used, but sort of no one has brought together in this way. So it's, it's, it's sort of simplistic, but also sort of complex. Um, and it just really has just shown really, really great results for people. So uh, it's not so much about the the book, it's really more so about the system and just really giving people this awareness of like, okay, here are the top three or three areas where like demons start to sabotage your tennis game. These are the areas where, you know, tennis players really need to have uh, a sense of how to deal with those moments. These are the areas that I help tennis players develop those moments. Fantastic. Well, and so for my listeners, I want you all to know that I'm going to have a link to the book in the show notes, and it will also be added to the books page on parentingaces.com. So you'll be able to click through and um, and purchase Dr. Michelle's book, Beating the Tennis Demons. Um, If there's one message in your book, Dr. Michelle, that you would hope that everybody listening to this would take away, what would that be? And the I'm message would but no, <laughs> Sorry. no, 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 that's fine. No, no, I, it's okay. The message would really be that 
we're human. We can't be totally mindful and aware 24-7, but we can learn to be more aware and develop the coping mechanisms that we need to play tennis. I mean, this is what, you know, this is what tennis players are designed to do, play tennis, right? Not be stuck and caught in the emotion. So I say learn to play smarter, not necessarily harder. Yeah, love it. I love it. All right, if people want to <laughs> find you, how can they do that? Well, my website is drmichelleclear.com. That's C-L-E-E-R-E. Or you can email me at drmichelleclear, no, drmichelle at drmichelleclear.com. And, yeah, my website um, has a lot of great information. My ebooks are also on there. There's testimonials on there. Lots of lots of great information. So, I will attest to that, and we will include all those links in the show notes. Um, again, along with a link to purchase Dr. Michelle's book, Beating the Tennis Demons. So, be sure to check that out. And uh, Dr. Michelle, I'm I'm so happy to have met you. We kind of connected, I don't know, randomly. I, you sent me an email. I don't know. How did you find me? I, I never asked you that. I was on some, I think I was on in some Facebook group, and I was just like, you know, uh, reading some of the posts, and I saw yours, and I went to your website, and I was like, oh, wow, how cool. How cool. <laughs> yeah, and then well, you and I you got go. the opportunity to we got the opportunity to talk a couple weeks ago and I thought even more yep. cool. Like the fact that you're yeah. still doing this work, which is, I mean, you know, I work with what I call the triad, um, you know, parents, coaches and athletes frequently um, and do workshops frequently and to find somebody else who, you know, is as passionate about this as I am. Um, I, yeah, it was just, a, it was a good thing for me. I appreciated being able to have the conversation and now to, you know, be able to be a part of your podcast. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, you know, I am always excited to introduce the Parenting Aces community to people that can be of service or of help to their kids or to the parents themselves as they go through this journey. So, Parents, if you're listening, I hope you will seek out Dr. Michelle, at least at the very least, take a look at her website and read up on her book. And, um, you know, you never know whose paths may cross in the future. I I hope that you hear from, from some of my community um, and are able to help their kids. So I, I think the work you're doing is fantastic and continued success to you. And thanks so much for being on the podcast this week. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I really, you know, this is not necessarily for me about getting business, although I love business, but it's really about just sharing information. It's about being able to have these great conversations with people like you, Lisa. And again, I really, really appreciate you um, bringing me on and sharing me with your peeps. So thank you. Don't miss a thing on Parenting Aces. Be sure to sign up for our free e-newsletter so you're among the first to know when a new article is posted. Simply go to ParentingAces.com and enter your email address, then click subscribe in the subscribe for updates box on the left side of the page.
Thanks for joining us again for this edition of the Parenting Aces podcast. I hope you learned something new and that you're finding these podcasts helpful. If there's ever a topic or a guest that you'd like us to have on the show, just reach out to me. You can email me, lisa at parentingaces.com, or tweet at me, or message me on Facebook, or any of the social media, and I am here to help y'all. My tennis journey has come to an end, and now I'm, I just want to share what I learned in hopes of helping all of you avoid some of the mistakes and pitfalls that I made along the way. So please reach out and be sure to, to share the podcast and our website with your tennis community. And if there's ever anything we can do to help, you know how to get a hold of us. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, visit us online at parentingaces.com. As always, a huge thank you to our sponsor, tennisballs.com.